It's summertime, the weather is beautiful. What a perfect time to stay inside and look at our fantasy football rankings and sleepers at fantasyfootball.theringer.com. And check out our pod with Danny Kelly, Danny Heifetz, and me, Craig Horlbeck, at The Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom and the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. All right, it is Monday, August 8th. One of the biggest beneficiaries of this so-called post-COVID or dealing with COVID economy has been the live music touring business. By a couple estimates, it's going to be more than $30 billion in revenue this year. Along with that comes the issue of ticketing. This has been a controversial issue for decades now. I remember back in the 90s when Pearl Jam declared war on Ticketmaster, went before Congress, testified, ultimately threw up their hands, decided that they couldn't fix what they called a chasm between what they wanted and what the business required of them. This has not gone away. And in fact, in some ways, it's gotten worse. You go on a ticket site these days, whether it's Ticketmaster or one of the others, and it is fully optimized to maximize the price via algorithms. You click on one seat, it's not available, all of a sudden it knows that you want this, so it jacks up the price or it jacks up the ticket fee. It's annoyed me forever, it's annoyed my friends, and I've written about this some, Lucas Shaw has written about it a lot, so we wanted to have him on today to discuss the dynamic pricing situation. It's been on display because the Bruce Springsteen tour that is ticketing right now has shocked a lot of his fans by having a top ticket price that went up to about 5000 bucks. Maybe that's the market. Maybe that's gouging. Maybe it's somewhere in between. But it raises a whole host of issues for the music industry. And I know this is something that gets talked about a lot in the upper echelons of music. So today, dynamic music pricing and what can be done about it. And then at the end, we're going to take a day off from the call sheet and do a special segment trying to answer, why does Beyonce's song, Alien Superstar, have 24 writers? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw. One of my pet peeves is music concert tickets. I've ranted about this amongst my friends for years. It is always a bad experience. Always. And you write about this stuff a lot. You were smiling right now as I opened this rant. So I'm just going to get into it because Bruce Springsteen is now the poster child for all of this because his fans woke up one morning. They were exposed to the dynamic pricing system on the Ticketmaster website. And all of a sudden, Tickets for Springsteen were 5500 $5, bucks. Not great. And obviously, everyone goes after the artists. I'm not blaming the artists here. There is a market. This is capitalism. This is what the market does. And it's either going to go to the artist or it's going to go to the middleman. 
that is in the middle of these transactions. But there's got to be a better way for all this stuff to pan out. Or is there not? I, I think it's just funny that this comes up every six months to a year with some artist that agitates people. I'm not surprised it's Springsteen in this case because you have a ton of, like I would say, columnists, editors, people who matter at media companies who are likely Springsteen fans. And so they go on and buy tickets and are incensed about this when this is an issue that, to your point, like any concert goer experiences on many, many tours. You know, Paul McCartney's out there right now with a tour where the average ticket price is like $250, $270. Bad Bunny, who had the biggest tour the first half of the year, his average ticket price was like $200. Ticket prices have just gone up. And then artists have have found ways to charge more um, for all sorts of experiences. But but to your point, the big issue is the scalper one, and I don't know what the answer to it is because you know the, the artist has the the totally reasonable argument, which is if my tickets are being resold for three or four times what we're selling them for, people are still having to pay too much, and I'm missing out on the money. Instead, it's going to this middleman. Um, Live Nation and Ticketmaster, which owns Ticketmaster, has experimented. Yeah, let's get into the financials here because people yeah. don't realize. Everyone blames Ticketmaster. It's really Live Nation is controlling all aspects of the live music experience, right? Explain how powerful Live Nation is. So Live Nation is the largest concert promoter in the world by a lot. Um, the only thing that's even close is is AEG, which is a kind of affiliate of this guy Phil Anschutz, who also owns sports teams, and and they're the they're the company that puts on Coachella. But Live Nation is the biggest concert promoter, and it also owns Ticketmaster, which is far and away the biggest seller. So think about that. I mean, and and there have been rumblings about antitrust concerns about this arrangement for years. For some reason, it has never happened. But the company that is putting on the shows. And, you know, has their relationships with the arenas and the artists is also deciding how much these tickets should cost in any given situation. Now, remember when you say that, that the artist has a lot of say in what the tickets cost. And that's why you'll notice it, you know, if if Live Nation or Ticketmaster could, could control everything, you'd probably see a little more hom- homogeneity in ticket prices. But you'll have an artist like, Ed Sheeran or Coldplay, they care a lot, or at least they say they care a lot about the common fan, and their ticket price is usually sub $100. Right. But that doesn't account for the market, and the secondary market then jacks it up to whatever the market will bear, and Ticketmaster has a stake in the secondary market. They own secondary ticket sellers as well. So sometimes if you go on the Ticketmaster website, the face value tickets will be interspersed with the secondary market ticket, thus bringing the prices up, even if the artist doesn't necessarily want their price to be up. And only the most discerning fan is going to be able to spot the difference between this is an original ticket and they'll have kind of a certified fan resale, I think is what the, the ticket Ticketmaster language is on it. Yeah, I mean, they everything that Ticketmaster and Live Nation do, they say, is, of course, trying to kind of give as much money to the artist as possible and to solve this problem. And it is true that kind of scalping and scalpers' use of bots to buy up tickets and then resell, resell them for more is, is not Live Nation's fault. But they could do something about it. I mean, I went on to buy tickets for The Killers in Vegas. My wife loves The Killers. And literally, we had a pre-sale, the whole thing. And right when they went on sale, nothing was available. That's bots, right? My buddy has a teenage daughter. He said he paid 600 bucks for Olivia Rodrigo. He's trying to get Harry Styles. He can't even get Harry Styles because of the bots. 
Yeah. Um, and there have been some congressional inquiries into this. You bring up antitrust. There, there are a lot of concerns about Live Nation and, and Ticketmaster being part of the same company, especially just because Live Nation's market share and promotion already is, is you know, bordering on monopolistic only because other than them, it's mostly a bunch of small mom and pop shops. Um, and certainly having that much control means that most artists and managers are loath to to go against them. I mean, this has been going back decades. I mean, Pearl Jam in the 90s. I mean, Ticketmaster has been the boogeyman of the ticket and music industry forever. The, the issue that you've run into in music that you don't have, say, in sports or in a lot of other things is that every artist only comes to a town once or twice a year, and usually not every year. It's like every three or four years. So you have, you know, very inelastic supply um, and a ton of demand. Um, and so it's a it's a prime opportunity for a bunch of crazy capitalists to take advantage. Like what the, the one of the solutions would be to try to say cap ticket prices or not permit resales for certain things. But then what do you do if you have someone who legitimately can't go and wants to dispose of it? I guess then they have to give it to a friend, do something like that. Um, the other issue that I think you're really seeing is like this this bifurcation of the market with concert ticket prices, where it's like. For most tours, it is still possible to get a reasonably priced ticket. It just won't be a good ticket. And all of the good tickets are now being sold to the wealthiest people who can buy them. And that's really, I mean, that's that to me, if I were an artist, that would be shitty. Because if I'm if I'm Harry Styles, I want to make sure that some of the, you know, the the teenage fans who love me or people in their young tw- early 20s who maybe don't have a lot of money can come and see me in the front row. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, think, I remember back when Hamilton was huge on Broadway, they would do a raffle. They would do some kind of a fan-oriented thing for the front row. And I think artists do do fan clubs and things like that. I know my buddy is in the Pearl Jam fan club, and they put a certain number of tickets in a tranche for just those people, and they are, like, relatively accessible compared to the rest. Well, Pearl Jam was the band that famously tried to take on Ticketmaster in the 90s. Right, and failed. And they just threw up their arms, and I feel like nobody has seriously challenged them since. You know, because obviously, if I'm a huge artist, the best-case scenario here would be to sell the tickets on my own website for whatever price I want and then have a direct relationship with the venue. But that's not possible because Live Nation is most likely booking your show, and they require Ticketmaster. And there's only so many good venues in certain places where if you're either working with Live Nation or you're not touring there. So let's get into this dynamic pricing scenario because that is what's relatively new here. This is where, you know, thanks to algorithms and and the sophistication of these websites, the price can fluctuate based on demand. And that's good for the artists because it will capture more of the value of their tickets for themselves rather than putting that into the secondary market, but it also can lead to situations where a fan can go on at the wrong time, get an overinflated price for a ticket, and then find out three weeks later that tickets are going for half the price at that same venue, and then you're kind of screwed. So you know, if you are an artist or a manager and you're booking a tour, do you like dynamic pricing? Do you not like it? It depends on what the priorities are for the manager and artist, right? Like Bruce Springsteen's manager has been very clear that, look, they saw a lot of other artists doing this. But that's always the cop-out, right? We're just, oh, 100%. We looked at what other artists are doing and we're doing something comparable. It's like, oh, 
but everybody's screwing their fans. So that's not an excuse. We've entered the phase where artists who don't charge a lot are the exception to the rule. So Coldplay is a good example. Coldplay, on their most recent tour, they said they were going to charge less. They are now touring. Paul McCartney is also touring, and he... He did not say the same thing. The journalist and professor Bill Wordy posted something this past week about how if you look at the ticket prices for both Paul McCartney and Coldplay, they're pretty similar, despite what the artists wanted here. Well, similar where? On secondary markets. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing, is that the, the artists will choose to sell what they can up front because they want to represent themselves in a certain way to their fans. And what you just laid out is sort of the argument for why what Bruce Springsteen, maybe what Paul McCartney is doing can be to the artist's benefit. And it it's really not as bad to the fans as you think because they'll just end up being resold for the same prices anyways. The the people who win in the case of, of Coldplay selling for less are the true fans who will go in and buy them up front. And the secondary market people. And the secondary market people. Who can then make their bets and capitalize on this. And it also, but someone, you know, it's been pointed out that When you price lower, you might be able to book larger venues, you sell more merch. So there are added financial benefits of that. Yes and no. I mean, it depends. There's there's sort of tranches of venues. And it's like, I don't think you're going to be able to go just because you have a cheaper ticket from a stadium, which is, or excuse me, from an arena, which is, say, 15 to 20,000, you know, where a basketball team or a hockey team would play to a stadium, which will be 50 to 100, where baseball and football stay. I mean, you're you're either able to sell out 50,000 or you're not. And the number of people who can do that is super small. Um but yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm stuck with tickets right now where I'm a Dodger season ticket holder. I got offered a pre-sale on Lady Gaga. I did not personally want to go see Lady Gaga, but I figured just people will, so I'll be able to buy it, sell it for a little bit more. I thought I could take advantage of this market. Did not happen. I'm going to end up eating money on this Wait, thing that I didn't want when is Lady Gaga? Place. My sister asked me if I could get tickets for that. September. All right, well, let's talk. <laughs> uh, I got I got something good out of this. Great. Yeah, maybe so. Um, and I and I, you know, but in sports, it's a whole different thing. I have a good friend who is a uh, a sports ticket mogul, where he buys up things like if the Orioles are on a you know huge winning streak, he'll buy the weekend series games and then make a huge fortune on everybody wanting to see the Orioles in their winning streak. But if they happen to lose on Thursday night, he has to eat the whole thing. So that's a whole separate thing. But in this context, the dynamic pricing, there's really no end to it. If the demand is so great, let's talk Adele in Vegas, or if Springsteen does a a small venue show, you know, that's the market, right? So the, the argument goes, why not let Bruce Springsteen capture the full five grand of those tickets if that is the demand. And everything else is just a branding exercise. If you want to be known to your fans as someone who is not going to gouge them, that's what you do, and everybody else can just play the market. Right. The the real issue, as I think we got at a little bit earlier, is just how do you stop the scalping phenomenon? Because if you could stop people from coming in and buying too many tickets explicitly for the purpose for reselling, then the artist and the promoter and the ticket seller could exert a lot more control over the market. But if you have scalpers that artificially constrict what is already pretty tight supply, you're totally screwed because there are going to be a lot of people. I mean, I remember hearing in reporting on the, the Bad Bunny tour that there would be certain shows 
that where there would be like half a million people in the waiting room trying to buy tickets. I mean, that's the thing is there's you have so much pent up demand right now because of the pandemic. And there's also more people on tour right now than ever. So this isn't happening with with every show. Like you you go around and you talk to to booking agents or managers about some of their artist tours and especially in the middle, like they're not selling that well right now because there's too many people out. But for people at the very top, there's never been a, a better time to sell tickets, which means for the customer, the fan, there's probably never been a worst time to buy tickets yeah there's an analogy here to the theme park industry because i as i've said on this show i've talked to disney executives who say they could charge seven eight nine hundred dollars to get into disneyland if they wanted to the demand is there people would pay it and they could make a lot more money and they don't because that's not the disney brand now you can argue whether they are abdicating that in recent years by all the upcharges that they have at, at the parks but in music, it's sort of the same thing. I mean, Springsteen, for those front row tickets, he could probably charge whatever he wanted. And his fans are older. They're more affluent. McCartney's the same. The fans will probably pay it. So the argument there is that, you know, that it could be worse, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, you could, th- th- they could give up the idea of charging less for the base tickets, right? Like Live Nation in their in their earnings last week made a point of saying that the sort of the, the cheapest or the, the base value ticket had only increased something like 5% over the previous year, whereas the higher end had increased more like 10 or 15%. And so they there, there has been an effort to keep some tickets affordable. And that's, I think, what you'd hear in the Springsteen case, too, is the manager would say, well, yes, we have these tickets that are four or $5,000, but there are some tickets that don't cost that much. It just feels like an icky experience when you're buying tickets. It just does. Like, I was on, I was on you know, this weekend trying to buy tickets for the Killers in L.A., and, like, I saw tickets I liked. I thought I was buying them. And transaction didn't work. All of a sudden, the same tickets were more expensive. Then I go to something comparable. Then all of a sudden, the ticket fee was increased. Like They were going to sure. capture that upsell any way they could. It's just like plane tickets. I had to book a, a, a pretty expensive trip for work later this year. And I looked at one price, and it was a little bit over what I thought it was going to be, but reasonable. I went and asked one of my colleagues about about it. They said that was a good deal and I should go for it. And by the time I went back to rebook it, it had gone up considerably. It's a total scam in that way. This is my hill I'm going to die on. This is I, th- this is my lifelong protest. Because they know by the time you've looked, they know you're interested, right? And the algorithm goes nuts. It's like when I clicked on one roller coaster video on Instagram, all of a sudden my feed is like all roller coasters. It's annoying. You just have to keep a clean computer that you can use to look things up. <laughs> or one of those programs that like wipes you clean every other day or something. Um, all right, Lucas, thanks for coming on. This will be the hill I die on. I'll bring you with me. We're going to protest Ticketmaster. I say as I prepare to go to like five concerts in the next six weeks. Exactly. All right, and we'll talk about Lady Gaga. All right, bye. All right, we are back. Normally, this is the call sheet segment, but we're going to try something a little bit different. I don't have a prediction every day of the week. So today, Q&A Corner. I get a lot of questions via text, via email. My newsletter for Puck usually prompts people to respond and sometimes with interesting stuff. Uh, Today, Craig, I forwarded you one. Read me the question. How the heck does Beyonce have 24 writers for one song? That is a fantastic question. Uh, It's something that I think has been in the news because Diane Warren, the famous songwriter, tweeted last week something similar. 
she kind of got destroyed by the Beyonce fan base who thought it was disrespectful to ask that very question. Uh, but I think a lot of people are curious. It, it doesn't seem like uh, something that would be a- easy to achieve. 24 writers on one song. That The song is Alien Superstar, which is a fantastic track from her new album. The short answer on that is samples. When you are a hip-hop artist, or in Beyonce's case, a pop star, and you're assembling a song, you are allowed to pull from other places. You can use samples. You can you know, take riffs. The only caveat is you have to pay for that. You have to credit for that. So when Beyonce on this song has three separate major samples, she has to credit all the writers on those original songs. That adds up pretty quickly when you get into it. That coupled with the fact that the way that the modern pop song is derived, multiple producers, multiple writers, they contribute a riff, they contribute a beat, they contribute some lyrics, including the star herself. She's obviously a writer in in this scenario as well. That gets up there pretty quickly. So it's actually not that surprising when you add all that up that you can get into the teens 20. Now, obviously 24 is a lot and not all of the tracks on Beyonce's album have that many, but many do. And this is something that, you know, on her last album, Lemonade, people said, wait, this is weird. And that's just the kind of artist Beyonce is. She puts together and interpolates and, you know, takes from here, takes from there and creates these soundscapes that people really love. So it's not that surprising. Is that surprising to you, Craig? Uh, No, 24 is a little bit of a ridiculous number. But so if she samples a song and that song, when it came out, sampled a different song. It's like a Russian doll of sampling where credits start increasing at a ridiculous amount because if a song is sampling a song that is sampling a song, it's like a never-ending cycle and that's how you can get to 24. It is, and it's funny because, you know, I wonder in 20 years, the next generation's Beyonce, what happens if they sample Alien Superstar? (laughs) Right, you're already at 24. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is an interesting issue in the music business because... You know, the writer's share, the publishing share of a song can be lucrative for the writer. There are songwriters who are never famous and don't record music themselves, but make great livings as songwriters. And once you start diluting the songwriter credit down like this, you can own 1% of publishing based on your deal. You can own 3 4% of publishing. It, it becomes diminishing returns. And I know a lot of producers in the music business don't love this either because it reduces their share as well. So I, I the, the ones I really feel for are the clearance lawyers at the labels. I mean, can you imagine having to clear this Beyonce album? I mean, she's already had problems where, you know, her fans didn't like the use of the word spaz. They thought it was uh, ableist. And there was another issue where Kellis, the, the, uh, who has the milkshake song, she didn't like that her song was sampled. So Beyonce decided to take it out of the song. I mean, there are all sorts of issues that come up, but you can spend weeks and months and even years clearing this music if you really try to go to the heart of where all of these samples come from. But on an album as high profile as this, I mean, this debuted at number one in the Billboard chart. You got to understand that if there is any issue, people are going to come out of the woodwork and challenge you. And there have been several high profile pieces of litigation in the music business over the past few years of artists who have come out and said, hey, you used my music without permission. You sampled my song. There was a big one in the music industry a few years ago where Robin Thicke was challenged over the use of a Marvin Gaye song 
in Blurred Lines, which was a huge hit. And the family of Marvin Gaye asserted that it was a similar beat and similar uh, uh, musical composition. And he and Pharrell actually lost. I mean, they lost a, a jury trial over that and ultimately settled. But that's a big deal. If you are a big artist and you are a sitting target here for people to come at you, you've got to make sure that all of this stuff is legally tied up before you release an album. And I think Beyonce is a particularly challenging artist because of the way she crafts her songs. All right. Hopefully that's a good answer. We're going to do this periodically when people have questions. We'll be back with more call sheets later this week. That's the show. I want to thank Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. And I want to thank you. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.